What's going on, entrepreneurs, small business owners, and side hustlers everywhere? It's 2023. It's time to figure out what you need to do to join the Seven Figures Club, both as a business owner and hopefully in your individual net income. And to do that, we brought in an amazing guest who's going to make that uh, process more doable, even with a potential recession looming in 2023. Today, we've got Barry Ruin, who is an admitted industry contrarian. He is wary and often critical of conventional financial wisdom. Sounds like he's going to be a good fit for the podcast. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Wealth Defense Financial Advisors, which focuses on the unique needs and goals of business owners, us, so he serves our community. Uh, he also serves high-income professionals, awkwardly mobile families, real estate investors, and those entering or already in retirement. With over 35 years of experience as a certified financial planner, Barry has developed and refined a proprietary process for creating collaborative and cooperative financial and retirement planning engagements with clients. He has owned and operated several financial planning and investment advisory firms and served as the Director of Financial Services and Director of Charitable Trust Planning for a major bank located in the Pacific Northwest and outside of work, Barry is a boating enthusiast who can often be found on the waters of Lake Washington, Puget Sound, and the Salish Sea. He resides in Kirtland, Washington with his wife, Colleen, and enjoys hiking, weightlifting, traveling, chasing new first experiences, and he's always striving to catch the perfect sunset picture, of which there's quite a few there in Washington. Barry, welcome to the show. There are over 32 million businesses in the U.S. and over 90% of them will never break seven figures in annual sales. So how do we as entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs break into that seven figures club? This podcast will relentlessly share the secrets, strategies, and tactics I've used to create three multi seven figures businesses and bring in even more successful entrepreneurs than me to share their inspirational stories and tactics to success. You can create your dream business in life right now. So buckle up and let's go. Great to be here, Leo. That's, uh, you said that exactly the way that my mother wrote it, so I appreciate that intro. All right. Well, yeah, she did a good job uh, putting your bio together. Well, actually, I always say it that way because she really wanted, I went to law school for a while and I, I oh, yeah? kind of broke her heart that I left law school. So I always give the uh, give the bio attribution to mom. Well, luckily, it looks like it was a pivot uh, that made a lot of success here, you know, moving forward into your life, serving business owners, helping people get their money right, which is certainly what we're focused on. Uh, Barry, before we kind of dive into it, you know, seven out of 10 economists believe that 2023 is going to be a year with a potential recession, job losses, things that are going to affect us as business owners and, and so forth. Um, what are you seeing on the uh, horizon of 2023? And, and what are some of the things you believe business owners should really be paying attention to in terms of their financial planning um, to deal with some of these, uh, you know, looming storms on the horizon? Yeah, certainly a timely question. You know, when you know, the Fed is a, a club, not a scalpel. And when you tighten down uh, things as much as they have, and you know, effectively they they raise interest rates, which causes action. It causes people to buy less houses, and if you buy less houses, then you don't buy all the stuff that goes into prettying up a house when you buy it. And then the person who sells that stuff can't you know can't go out and buy their stuff. And then uh, people buy less cars, and then the guy who sells the cars can't you know. So there's this cascade effect of 
squeeze businesses uh, to not, you know, and then, you know, you just read about 18,000 layoffs at Amazon and certainly tens of thousands of other layoffs at other companies. Well, I always think about those on an individual basis. You know, anytime I see a layoff uh, announcement in the newspaper, you know, it makes me sad because I've, you know, I think about those at the individual client level. Those are real families with real lives, real kids, real bills, real obligations. And, you know, a lot of them will land on their feet, but some won't. And so I think the first, you know, (laughs) whenever I hear somebody say 35 years, I, you know, at one point feel a little bit old, but I've actually been through several interest rate cycles. I was counseling my clients to get out of bonds. And this is not investment advice. This is just like, if you look at history, you know what's coming, right? So, you know, you raise really? interest rates, bond prices go down, people in bonds can lose money. And so, you know, when people were uh, looking at the, you know, normally bonds are kind of a safe haven and, uh, you know, the principle is generally safer, but interest rates cause bond prices to go down. So people got uh, hurt in the in the short term. So recessions happen. They are a normal response to an overheated economy. Uh, I think we had way too much time, uh, you know, on, on borrowed time, on cheap money. Uh, and a lot of these yeah. companies, I, I think these CEOs should be fired when they come out and say, well, we hired a bunch of people because things were really hot and bothered during the pandemic. Well, seriously, did you think it would be forever? So I, I think we need to take some personal responsibility for protecting ourselves. You know, I always say there's two roles <clears throat> that a financial advisor like myself performs. Number one, avoid financial loss in all, all of its forms, not just investing, uh, but in you know insurance and everything. Just make sure that the avoidable is avoided, the preventable is prevented, the things that are known, uh, and then achieve financial success, whatever that means to you. I liked your intro, uh, especially focusing on not just top line revenue, but bottom line, you know, cash flow into the into the personal treasure chest of the individual. I think uh, sometimes we can fake ourselves out with. Um, hey, we got a lot of top line revenue, but we're so overloaded with expenses and obligations that we don't net anything. And we're just working for uh, the people that have extended us credit. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the book. I'm sure somebody in your previous podcast has mentioned Profit First. Absolutely. Uh, so come up multiple times. Uh, that that should be like, that. you know, on, on, the, on the nightstand and next to the toilet and on the kitchen yes, table and on the desk. Uh, yes. that, that's the Bible, in my opinion, about how to run a business properly, uh, as far as at least, you know, ha- handling your money. Um, I think the people who have positioned themselves to be, um, a little bit insulated by either having good reserves, which I, I preach a lot, uh, oh, yeah. you've got to have rainy day funds, not just for individuals. I certainly am a huge advocate of the personal emergency fund. Uh, you know, you, you've heard the six months to a year's worth of expenses. Well, that's a personal thing, right? Maybe you need more than that. Maybe you need less than that. But oftentimes businesses kind of take the money in, set aside their taxes, hopefully, um, you know, take profit out, pay expenses and such. And, and they haven't left a cushion in, in the business. And whether that's really within the business accounts or on the side, you know, whatever works for you, whatever works for your accountant, but you've, you've got to have an emergency fund. Uh, it was amazing to me when the pandemic started and air travel just completely ground to a halt that the airlines immediately were whining and complaining that they they, they couldn't maintain their businesses. Well, you guys have been just raking us over the coals with fees and fees and fees, billions of dollars. You didn't set any of that money aside in case there was a little bump. You've, you've seen travel uh, you know, pullbacks in the past. So, uh, But the cruise industry, interestingly, 
uh, was much better uh, situated and actually had had built up reserves. Uh, and, you know, they still needed some money, but they 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 weathered the storm better and their business was completely shut down. So oh, I, think yeah, the lesson, I think the lesson for individuals, uh, business owners is the business needs an emergency reserve and the personal family finances needs an emergency reserve. And then, <clears throat> you know, a recession is not a stoppage. It's a slowdown. And I think the question is, how do you position yourself so that whatever you're selling, offering, providing your product or service uh, uh, seems more essential, or you may need a, a pivot in, in the short term uh, to keep the revenue flowing. You may really, um, you know, uh, I try and meet with my clients periodic, periodically on a variety of topics. Uh, January normally has some other things in it. Uh, this month, my topic is is expense slashing. Uh, what's unnecessary uh, at the business level that you've been paying for that you're not using at the personal level? You know the, the famous you know Hulu subscription that you never used. Um, you know how to, how to cut expenses, but you can only cut expenses so far. So then you have to go to top line revenue. And how how do I increase my top line revenue? Um, and and how do I get creative. I think the people who survive these kinds of things are creative and they are valuable to the people. Uh, so for example, you may have listeners that have relationships with other vendors. I'll give you a perfect example. This is the strategic joint venture. Um, entity A has one customer list. Entity B has another customer list. Why can't they exchange offers to their respective lists if they're in complementary or even non-complementary businesses, right? And so you know, I've always believed that in a business, the value is in the customer list. Most businesses dramatically underutilize that customer relationship. It's a it's a relationship of one transaction or one topic or one product. And I think those can be really expanded on. So my biggest recession survival recommendation for business owners is the strategic use of your customer base to generate more uh, revenue or not necessarily from within your business, but within the business of somebody else and then share that revenue, right? So that's business they wouldn't normally get. So if I can drive another $100,000 to another business, we may have a revenue sharing arrangement. Um, so I think getting creative on that level can be can be really helpful. Yeah, no question. Strategic partnerships are one of the most powerful ways to keep your business uh, running. And a lot of the time, it just takes some effort to reach out and, and connect with those strategic partners and if it can be strategic and they're benefiting and it's a new additional stream of income, then they're significantly more motivated to do that. And, and that's uh, really how we built 95% of our business is by helping uh, you know those business consultants, coaches, trainers whose clients need financing. Let's get them into our programs, help their clients. Everybody wins together. And so I think that's a, a big part about it. And so as we have this potential recession coming and slowdown, there's uh, this important factor that you need to have money set aside to deal with these slowdowns. And what do you think are some of the main reasons why a small business owner uh, may not have done that, may not have the money set aside? Well, I think it goes back to, you know, number one, it goes back to the profit first idea that are you seeing no. <clears throat> your money kind of at the top of the funnel? <clears throat> Excuse me. And then where is that money going? And I think what happens is, especially when we start up a business, there seems just, just to be a lot of money that goes out. I mean, we just kind of get into this habit of sending money out. And 
obligating ourselves to everything from, you know, rents and leases and payroll possibly and uh, marketing expenses and such. There's a very well-known uh, uh, three-word phrase in, in personal financial planning, and that's pay yourself first. I routinely see business owners violating this rule. Um, and that's the fundamental principle behind profit first, which is pay yourself first. Uh, you know, take your gross revenue, set aside your taxes, and then put some money in the profit account. Now, profit is different than owner compensation, right? Owner compensation is different than profit set aside. Um, are you setting aside money in your retirement account? So before you start obligating yourselves to all these different expenses where you're making somebody else wealthy, are you setting aside money in your accounts? Like I can go into my bank account now, my business bank account, and and there's retirement, there's taxes, of course. Uh, you'll hear me say that over and over again because businesses get into trouble when they don't set their set aside their taxes. It ain't your money, <laughs> and I use the ain't uh, in, in, intentionally. It isn't your money. Oh. Set it aside. It's gone. Um, <clears throat> and then say, hey, I'm going to allocate X amount or X percentage of every dollar I take in for my retirement. Maybe that's 10 or 15%. I'm going to set aside a certain amount of money for profit. And profit is the retained value of the business's activities to, to be deployed as they see fit in the future. So you'll probably hear about people like, um, well, you'll uh, uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, Apple, Microsoft. You'll hear that they're sitting on billions with a B <clears throat> in money that just is sitting there waiting for an opportunity. Uh, and, and it gives them a tremendous amount of flexibility to kind of wait things out, deal with recessions. Uh, but when uh, Warren Buffett says, you know, when everybody else is scared, that's a time to be brave. So a lot of these companies are smart enough to know, hey, there's going to be cycles. There's going to be companies, you know, at, at that level, there's companies available for acquisition when things like recessions occur. Oh, sure. We'll peel off $3 billion off the profit retained account. And we'll go buy that company for 30 cents on the dollar, as opposed to when it was a dollar 30 on the dollar when everything was hot and bothered. And so I think it's the same thing for um, for the individual business owner. What have you retained to then take advantage of and capitalize when opportunities uh, present themselves? And I think it's about being strategic and, and recognizing that there's going to be good times and bad times. Always we go through cycles. Um, <clears throat> and then at some point, it's about the value of the business, right? If we don't have retained uh, yes. profit, it's really kind of hard to say that there's a value in this business other than it being a, a conduit for transactions. No, exactly. And, and are you actually building a business that is exitable that if, you know, you did want to cash out or you wanted to cash out a portion or, you know, sell to a private equity or strategic, even better at a higher multiple, are you building that type of business that has that potential? Or is this just a business that is a little ATM machine that makes you some profits here and there, but you're not really building towards something bigger and your team realizes that and you don't attract and keep talent when you're not building towards something bigger. And so I feel like that's a big missed opportunity that a lot of them have. Now, one of the issues uh, that you're very good at articulating, Barry, is the fact that, listen, there's a lot of conventional wisdom out there. There are the financial entertainers and gurus out there, and they're out giving their advice. What is it about some of this conventional or the, the TV entertainers advice that is actually steering people wrong and costing them a lot of money? You know, I'm going to start out with an example unrelated to money, and then I'm going to kind of fold back into money. Um, 
breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Is that nutritional advice or is that a marketing campaign over decades by companies that make cereal? And the truth of the matter, it's the latter. It came out of the desire to sell more grain-based products by food manufacturers. And so uh, we could argue whether, you know, you should do intermittent fasting and not eat in the morning, or if you should have, you know, a couple of eggs in the morning. I'm not, I'm just simply saying that the mantra of breakfast is the most important meal of the day uh, was a marketing campaign put out by uh, uh, food, food companies. So I was, I've been doing this long enough where um, I remember the world before 401ks. I remember actually having to explain what a 401k was and its advantages uh, when they first came out. And this is back in the like the late 80s. So there was a time pre-401k. Well, <clears throat> originally the accountant who looked at the tax code and figured out that a 401k could be a viable option was simply trying to uh, take advantage of the tax code for one client who was highly compensated, uh, had kind of maxed out their pension, and they was looking for a way to supplement. So 401ks were meant to be a supplement to the defined benefit pension plan, you know, the traditional big corporate pension plan. Well, the companies were like, huh, these pension plans are expensive. We're providing a guaranteed benefit for life uh, with no contribution uh, or no risk on the part of the employee. Are you saying that we could get out of these pensions? We could stop funding these things for at least for new people and, and eventually have this dwindling obligation and shift all the burden to employees to do a 401k. And we're going to tell them that um, the, the pre-tax contribution is awesome because you're going to be able to lower your taxable income now. Well, what did we end up with? We ended up with millions and millions of amateur investors and, and really uh, amateurs generous, meaning they had no idea what they're doing, no idea no. how to put a portfolio. They don't even know what they're invested in. No, they have no idea. I mean, even if somebody says, hey, this is the aggressive growth portfolio, or this is such and such mutual fund, they have no idea what they own, no idea that they should rebalance and reallocate, um, no idea how to make decisions. And yet all this burden has been placed on them and they're told that pre-tax contributions are awesome. Well, I'm going to do a little bit of a little interaction with you for a second, okay? Um, I want you to pretend that you were a corn farmer. You know, you're somewhere in the heartland of Middle America, and you have a corn uh, field. <clears throat> and you, uh, when, when we plant corn, usually they'll put like two or three kernels to make sure at least one of them germinates, and then you know, hopefully with with sunshine and water and love, uh, it'll grow into a stalk. The stalk will have a bunch of ears. Each ear has 650 or so kernels of corn on it. And I'm going to give you a choice. I'm the IRS. I'm going to give you a choice. Do you want to pay taxes on the seed corn, the two or three kernels that go in the ground, or all the kernels on all the ears on all the stalks of corn? Which one would you prefer? This is chance to so, so I could do pay taxes either on the, the three seeds that go on the ground that turn into all the kernels. Right. Or pay taxes on all the kernels of the harvest. Basically a seed versus harvest. Uh, uh, probably the uh, the kernels of the uh, kernels of the corn. The the, the seed, right? So, Wait, so what what would be the difference there? If I'm so, doing it on the, the seed. So just those three versus 650, is that what you're saying? Yeah, or 650 times the number of years on that just just that one stock 
if you think about it, you're oh yeah. If I can do it on the seed, then and I'm just paying off the little seeds versus six fifty per ear, then yeah, that's right. a lot less. But what? How is how are most well all four hundred one ks, IRAs, and self structure? Are you paying taxes on the seed or the harvest? The harvest. The harvest. Okay. Yeah. So you have, so so everybody's been sold the bill of goods to make po a pre tax contributions. And then be fully taxable on the gain and the contribution on the back end after 30, back 40 end. years, right? So the government's like, sure, take a tax break now because we have actuaries and we know math. We will have trillions of dollars of money coming out 100% taxable at an unknown tax rate in the future. So everyone in a 401k right now has an obligation to pay the government some portion of that money. So when you look at your 401k statement, you do not know what your actual ownership stake in that is. So if you had $100,000 and taxes were 25%, you own $75,000. But if taxes were 40%, you own $60,000. It's an unknown future obligation because you made pre-tax contributions with, with then obligating yourself to post-distribution um, uh, uh, post fully taxable. But what if you could pay the tax? So no matter what the age is, so Barry, when I get to be 59, 60, 65, there's no tax break there, right? It's still, when I start to withdraw, it's whatever tax bracket I'm found in. There is no tax-free money. Yes, you're putting it in pre-tax in your paycheck for however many years. But when you get to the retirement age and you start to draw from it, then you're going to pay taxes on not only the principal that you put in there, but also the gain, all the gain, right? uh, the harvest, if you will. Right. And so the question is, if there were other strategies, which there are, if there are other strategies where I would pay tax on the contribution dollar to have all of the distributions be uh, tax-free, a common example is the Roth IRA, uh, yeah. where, you, where you put it in after tax, it grows tax-free, and then the dis distributions are tax-free. Uh, the problem with the Roth is very limited to both income qualification to be able to use it and, and then how much money you can put into it. Right? And the contributions are capped. There are a couple other strategies that we don't have time to go into. Well, that Peter Till did a, did a good little strategy there, right? Where he, he was able to put his uh, his stock in PayPal before it went right. uh, public. And now supposedly it's like a $5 billion uh, Roth IRA, I think. Pretty pretty sneaky. I think but, they're going to go the majority of us, that's, that's not how it's so that's, that's a good example of where the conventional wisdom is both benefiting the employer by them not having the, the defined pension payout obligation, all the investment risk and management is placed to the employee, and the tax structure isn't necessarily advantageous. So the conventional wisdom is work hard, contribute to your 401k, work for 35 years, and, and you'll have some money. And the reality is most people's 401ks have just lost you know, 25, 30%, you know, 22%, whatever, um, yep. and it's going to take a lot more return for those to come back. So, like I said, the, the, if you're just following the conventional wisdom, the conventional wisdom is set up to benefit the people who put it out there, not necessarily the people who are using and utilizing it. The 30-year mortgage is like the classic example of, um, you know, how much money is going to pass through your hands uh, to, you know, own that home and how much money you're going to pay out over interest over time, uh, you know, to own that. And 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 they say, well, you should. You, the bank's like, oh, you you should pay extra every month. And I'm like, okay, so basically, the bank took in savings. I'll say this generally at a half a percent or one percent or whatever. They're lending it out at you know then four five six seven now, 
So they're making that spread. And what they're saying to you is pay your loan back faster. Why? Because they want the principal back to turn around, lend the money back out again. So they can cycle and cycle and recycle. And, you know, you're an expert on lending. Um, the question is, if your goal was to pay your house off in 15 years, you could send that money to some account of your own that you own and you control. Let that build up to the point in the amortization schedule on the 30-year loan that equals 15 years, write a check, pay it off. But the reality is you'll probably be in your third or fourth house by that point. You won't pay off that original loan. And you did not have access to that money for emergencies or opportunities. The bank had access to that money for their opportunities. So you've given up the opportunity cost or your, your uh, of that money. So one of the things I recommend to people is don't prepay your mortgage to the bank, prepay the mortgage to yourself and give yourself the flexibility of either having access to the capital directly to redeploy for your benefit, for you to invest, for you to save. Uh, and if you have an emergency, you'll have a big chunk of capital to back you up where we started our conversation. Or if there's a great opportunity to either you know, make a timely purchase, like let's say something you need, a, a water heater or washing machine uh, goes on sale because during the recession, those companies selling them are like, hey, we got to move some machines here. We'll take less profit. We'll sell them cheaper. Hey, I can just buy that for cash and not put that on a credit card. So the the reason I'm, uh, you know, rage against the machine of conventional wisdom is because I think it harms people. No question. Barry, what would you estimate are some of the average fees that you're actually not seeing that you generally are paying with a 401k account on an annual basis? You know, let's say theoretically it's following the S&P 500, making 8% a year, but you might not actually see an 8% return because there are probably a bunch of fees that are going to knock that return down. What would you say that uh, on average sometimes, what is the range of what those fees could actually be? You know, I will have to say that that market forces, both somewhat regulatory, somewhat at the company level, somewhat at the employee level in the 401k space, uh, the fees have come down a lot. There's a lot more, um, I think, fiduciary transparency on the part of the, the money managers, the plan custodians and things where the fees have become more reasonable, although you still have to be really careful. Some plans are not set up properly. Uh, the other thing is if you have the right. So, so is it like 1% though, Barry, if I'm making, you know, 8% a year, cause I'm following the S and P 500 and whatever risk tolerance you want to call that. Um, am I really getting 8% or am I probably paying another? I mean, I don't think you're actually getting the, 7%. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you can look at the gross return of the mutual funds within your 401k and say, I'm getting that. Uh, you obviously your, your performance is reported net of all fees, right? So a 401k has a, a plan administrator, a money manager, a plan fiduciary. Um, those fees have had downward fee pressure as the marketplace has become more competitive. But I think you don't want to just look at the underlying funds and you know kind of look at what, what a website tells you you earn because th there will be some money coming out. I think the bigger issue, Leo, is not necessarily, and again, I think you have to be, if you are in a 401k plan, you know, a company-sponsored plan, I think you want to be aware of uh, and, and seek out the disclosures of the expense side. But I think there's a bigger, more important issue, and that is how are you personally allocated and are you staying the course? Are you jumping around? Uh, are you rebalancing and reallocating? What those two terms mean is 
if I have four or five different holdings, say international stocks, domestic stocks, small stuff, big stuff, bonds, whatever, uh, and and my portfolio model says that I should have you know 22% of something, well, in every year, some stuff's going to go up and some stuff's going to go down. If you stay the 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 what you're trying to do is stay within a risk parameter. And so some stuff you're going to need to sell a little bit to bring the numbers down, or you're going to have to buy some of the stuff that didn't perform well. So the numbers get back in line. The good news is if you look at history, usually the stuff that did good this year doesn't do good next year. And the stuff that did poorly this year does better next year. So you really want to move that money around and take some chips off the table, add some chips to some other stacks so that you're uh, taking um, the right amount at risk for the return. And if I may, if you looked at professional investors, and these would be pension plans, college endowments, um, where they're managing billions of dollars, they're looking at two things. They're looking at their risk budget, meaning how much variability am I willing to accept that's measured by what's called standard deviation. So if I want to earn 8%, how much variability on either side of 8% am I getting versus the return? And they ask that their money be managed to those metrics. I would tell you that 98% of people, say, in a 401k or a self-managed IRA are not paying attention to that. And so they're taking excessive risk and not getting paid not getting rewarded, not getting the extra return for that. And a lot of times we can dial back the risk and keep the return within the same range so that when things go bad, they don't have as much of a, a punch in the face. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. So Barry, I know you talk about a lot about four sneaky threats to financial security for business owners. What are those uh, four threats and how can we, you know, be aware of them and, you know, what can we do to overcome those, those issues as business owners? Sure. Yeah. One of my favorite topics. Um, many times, especially if people are sole proprietors or, you know, maybe a two-person partnership or something, um, they don't put in place the, the, what I call the stop loss uh, protections. So for example, mm -hmm. Uh, they don't have sufficient liability insurance, like general uh, liability insurance, uh, errors and omissions insurance, depending on the industry. <clears throat> so, um, you know, if you have a physical place that you do business out of and somebody slips and falls, are you going to be wiped out because of a lawsuit? Um, if you do something wrong in your business where somebody is harmed, are you going to be, again, wiped out by a lawsuit? Um, so making sure you have the right protection in place. A lot of business owners don't know that there is business overhead expense insurance that will continue to pay your overhead, your rent, and other things when, when things go sideways, uh, business interruption insurance, things like that. Um, so that's kind of the first thing. Make sure you have all the things that are just, you know, don't, don't get creamed unnecessarily. And honestly, don't be cheap about insurance because the transfer of risk is actually very financially efficient. So, so the first thing is be aware of your insurance needs and make sure you have all the different types of insurance to cover your liability basis. Yeah, because you you could be out of business the next day. Um, oh yeah. If you, if you want your time consumed, be involved in a lawsuit. Uh, mm. it, it'll it'll wipe you out time wise, emotion wise, money wise. It's awful. Um, second thing is, <clears throat> you alluded to this earlier. The idea of you know, I've actually been working on a new designation for myself beyond the certified financial planner. It's called certified uh, exit planning advisor. And I think a lot of people go into business with, you know, great intention and uh, maybe they're younger, maybe they're in their thirties or forties and I just long time before I retire. Well, 
when you talk to people who uh, go to sell their business, because a lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to build this business up and I'm going to sell it. We always say to who for how much. And what a lot of people are not doing is they're not, number one, running their business as if they were going to sell it tomorrow. So they're not maximizing the value of the business within their category, because every category of business has a multiple that the business would sell for. Uh, in a lot of cases, based on cash flow, uh, maybe customer list, market position, whatever. And so even if you're 35, you should be running your business as if you were going to put it on the market tomorrow and sell it and get maximum value for it. And what a lot of people do is they don't have the systems and processes and infrastructure that that this is a transferable entity that someone would actually want to pay money for. And so that's the first thing. Second thing is if you were in partnership with anybody, you have to have a buy-sell agreement that establishes the methodology of how the business will be valued and under what conditions it could be bought or sold uh, so that there aren't disputes and big problems and uh, you know, you're not in business with your partner's wife and or your husband or something. Um, so I think you want to have the legal agreements in place. Uh, that's where we have buy sells. That's where we have what we call business valuations uh, to make sure that that on a periodic basis, we know what this business is worth. But once you get into business valuation, you discover that, gosh, I'm, there's a whole bunch of parameters I'm not paying attention to uh, that are cost could cost me millions of dollars at sale. And just because you're young, doesn't necessarily mean that you could have a life change that would require you to sell the business. So let's say you're 40 and God forbid something happens to your children and, and you need to, to provide them your full attention for their care. And you're like, I can't spend 12 hours a day on my business and I need to sell it at 37. Well, are you going to get full value or are you going to get fractional value from uh, the sale of that business? So it's a really important, uh, a really important issue. Um, the other thing is is tied into that because retirement planning and, and exit planning are all tied into estate planning. Do you have your estate planning documents in place to protect your spouse, to protect your children, to protect your business interests? Um, we often come across very successful business owners who still don't have, you know, wills and trusts and, like I said, these buy sell agreements and and things like that. So make sure so we have insurance, we have you know sort of legal infrastructure combined with. Uh, uh, business uh, optimization, how you manage the business for maximum and full value. Because you literally, it's a risk that you're not going to get the extra $300,000 that you should have gotten because you didn't uh, run it that way. And there's quite a few good uh, books on that topic. Um, the the next thing is <clears throat> uh, one of the things we talked about earlier, which is not having both the the business emergency, personal emergency funds, and not taking money out of the business and and building and storing that as wealth, just you know, sort of putting everything back into the business. Now, in a lot of cases, it's good because you have the most control and you're going to probably get the most ROI by re, uh, sorry, ROI by reinvesting back in the business. Um, but the idea of being in business is not to be in business. The idea of being in business is to create wealth, your wealth. If you store a hundred percent of that wealth in the business. And if something happens to the business, your wealth is poof, it's gone. So can you pull out, store and extract that money and store it somewhere else uh, as you're still growing the value of the business? And if someone's an older entrepreneur, I think it's critical to, you know, get the business valued and, and make sure it's being operated properly. Because if, if you're out of the picture and the business stops, then you don't have a business, you don't have a saleable asset. 
And that ties into whether you have kids and you want to transfer it versus sell it. How are you going to protect? Like if you're expecting revenue back from the business, from your kids, well, what happens if your kid's a bad manager or they make a huge mistake and now all of a sudden your future retirement income you know, is, is gone. So you mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, the, my business is called wealth defense financial advisors. Well, you can see where my orientation is. I'm very protective of my clients, you know, nest eggs. Um, and then, <clears throat> excuse me, the fourth thing is in not creating a, um, a culture within your business that drives maximum revenue per employee that most especially small businesses that have a few employees the value and impact of those employees is so important and a lot of times we we sort of allow them not intentionally but they're effectively stealing money they don't mean to but they're stealing money by apathy by work effort um and so by by commitment to self-education and self-improvement so what I always recommend to business owners is treat your business like a sports team. You have the best players in the field you can right now, but as the general manager, it's your responsibility to look at the free agency, the people coming out of college, uh, who's on some other teams that are willing to be traded, and can they plug into my system and do better in my system? You've got to feel the best people and, and have them look at the metric of revenue per employee. Um, and, and if you're not looking at that and you sort of just lay out the payroll, then you're going to end up uh, probably dramatically under-revenuing the business. You're, you're simply not going to produce what it could produce with good systems, good processes, and and the best people on the field. Yeah, no, no question about it. And so as you're building that uh, sellable asset, let's look at kind of a case study of, of a business owner who builds that business up, is able to build it up into an exitable business because they followed your concepts, they have good systems and processes, the business can run without them being there, they've got key personnel that uh, they've you know, uh, con consistently trained up, and, and they're very valuable, smart people that are really good cogs in the machine, you're able to sell that, and at the end of the day, you net you know, $5 million from the sale, you've got to pay probably 20% long-term capital gains tax. So you're, you're left with $4 million and maybe you've got, you know, six, $700,000 worth of debt, including a mortgage. What would you recommend that business owner do who had just exited to really set themselves up for the rest of their life and their family? Well, that's that such a good question. I, I actually had this conversation with other uh, some other podcast hosts, and then we never kind of get to this topic. So I'm really glad you asked this. It is a well-known fact that people who come into large lump sums of money through either inheritance, lawsuit, lottery, that money's gone within a few years, five to seven years on the outside. The reason is <clears throat> most of us tend to measure our ability to shop and spend against this lump sum. Well, it's only 300,000 for the beach house. Well, it's only 80,000 for the Mercedes that I deserve now because I worked so hard. And all of a sudden you're dwindling, dwindling, dwindling that asset. And that asset is an engine or a pump. And it's there to, uh, the purpose of retirement or the concept behind retirement is very simple. I've accumulated enough assets like this $4 million example 
such that the assets go to work for me and produce income for the rest of my life instead of me producing labor to produce income. And therefore, you have to jealously and aggressively protect that lump sum from you know needless spend down, uh, unnecessary uh, losses. And what I try to do, because I'm probably risk averse by, by nature, is I try and make as much of my client's retirement income a certainty and I'll I'll lay it out for you really, really very specifically. I call this my retirement income distribution strategy. You've climbed the mountain. You've reached the peak. You've sold the business. You've netted $4 million. You've won it. You, you've won the game. Now don't screw it up. And if you think about mountain climbing, Leo, they don't pay the guides who bring people up uh, Mount Everest to get people up. It, it, it sounds like it. It looks like it. I'm going to summit Everest. The idea is to summit Everest and still get home. And almost all the people who die, die on the way down. That's where it's dangerous. You're oxygen deprived. You're tired. You've been climbing for hours and hours, hours. You're cold. You're hungry. You're disoriented. Um, so my job is to get people down the mountain as much as it is up. And what that client should be doing is number one, um, and I'm really giving away kind of the secret sauce here. It's a little bit more complicated in, in actuality, but but fundamentally, you should not be taking your monthly income directly from investments. I'm so tired. And this is that conventional wisdom contrarian stuff. I'm so tired of hearing about, oh, well, if you know you take 4% of a portfolio that's you know allocated to stocks and bonds and hopefully things don't go bad and you don't run out of money. I'm like, that's totally unnecessary. You should be drawing your monthly income from someplace super duper safe. I mean, let's call it cash. So you have 12 months, 24 months, 36 months of cash. Uh, what you're doing is as you're opening that valve in the bottom to pay your, you know, your property taxes and your food and your utilities and such, we're going to have another engine, another pump, pouring money back into the top of that coffer. So we're drawing money out of the bottom of a cash bucket and we're putting money into the top of a cash bucket with a tool that's just designed to safely, without fail, replenish that money. We'll call that an income generation tool. And then we usually only need to use about half the remaining money to do that. We can take the other half and send that money out into the long-term future for our inflation fighting to grow our money, to keep pace with inflation. But if I can get you out from 65 to 75 with absolutely zero risk, because we call that sequence of returns risk, right? What if somebody retired right at the beginning of 2022 and 25% of their assets are, are gone on paper and I'm selling a declined portfolio at the worst possible time, I am way more likely to run out of money. But if you oh, just yeah. took that monthly bill out of your checking account, no impact at all. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to use that income generation tool to replace my cash account. And then I use my long-term investment account to replenish the income replenishment tool. And it's basically a three-part strategy so that my goal is to maybe do two cycles of that and then set that person up with a lifelong income plan. And they are never going to watch the news. They are never going to worry about what the Dow did today. Who cares? Right. And so why go through 30 years of building a business and then spend the next 30 years being stressed out uh, in, in some high risk, you know, I hope your portfolio does X and doesn't lose Y kind of strategy. I think that's crazy. No question. So what's an honest, uh, you know, annual ROI target. If I had $4 million and I work you know, with, with someone like you who can help me make smart decisions with it, 
what should I, what should be my goal or target of income generation from that $4 million on an annual basis? Well, you know, it's interesting. There, there used to be uh, what was called this 4% rule that, you know, if you had a portfolio and you took 4% a year out and maybe adjusted that by inflation, uh, your portfolio has a high probability of, you know, success. Well, that was designed, you know, a couple of decades ago. It, 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 it probably isn't really valid anymore. Um, I believe that people need to shift their thinking from a rate of return, so a rate of return on your money, to a cash flow return number. How much money am I cash flowing? So for example, I'll give you one example. Like if you had $100,000, uh, you know, and you're pulling 4% a year out of that, but it's in a variable portfolio, you may not get that 4% a year. You may not be able to safely take it in a declining uh, uh, market, but there are other tools that you can use that might pay, say, 6 7% that are contractually uh, obligated to pay that uh, amount of money. What matters is the cash flow in retirement. What matters is cash flow sufficient to meet your needs, not some arbitrary rate of return. You getting 29% one year uh, is great for the cocktail party chatter, but it has nothing to do with retirement income security. It's about if I can make my world work at 5% or 6% or 4% or 7% or 3%, whatever your number is, that's all that matters is all we have to do is pay your bills, pay your required money. Then we want to make sure we have your fun stuff because it's no sense just sitting there, you know, watching TV. We want to make sure you can do the things you want to do, eat, travel, entertain, um, and then just keep pace with an inflation of all those things. That's really the job. So the mission in retirement income generation is very different than the mission of retirement asset accumulation. And it's really important that people switch hats and switch thinking. We spend a lot of time talking with people to get them in the right mental framework for what that second mission is. Because it's not about some arbitrary, if you have exposure to a lot of loss, just to have an arbitrary, um, you know, some target return, we do great one year out of five, That that's going to expose you to a lot of risk. So there are tools where people can have, you know, good part of the market's upside, but no downside. So when things go down, you stay flat. When things go up, you capture a good part of it. That's a good way to do it. I have found people have become much less uh, tolerant of volatility and volatility in markets is going up and up and up and up for a lot of reasons. And people are like, I can't ride this roller coaster anymore. Fortunately, the markets responded. When I say the market, I mean the market for tools uh, has responded with some tools now that are not start trying to swing for the fences, not trying to hit grand slams, but do nice, steady, you know, singles, doubles, triples, but then not give up anything on the on the back end, not go down, not lose money. And I think a lot of people are attracted to that. That's that's huge because imagine the people who are invested in like Kathy Wood's uh, tech fund that had yeah. Facebook, Google, and Tesla and Amazon and Apple and all those companies and Netflix. And a lot of those companies are down 40 to 60% in 2022 alone. The NASDAQ is down over 30% in 2022. And so you've got people's portfolios who have potentially been hammered. If you're down 30%, your 100,000 is now 70,000. And so if you make even, let's call it 40% the next year, you're still not back to where you were two years ago. Right. It always takes and more that, return to get back to zero than it, than you actually lost, right? So that there's a chart for that. Yeah. 
And yeah, so, so you know, you're, mean, you're, you're back flat. And if you're trying to draw income now from that 60,000, you actually sold. What are you going to do? You actually sold those investments. And now there's less players on the field to then earn that return to grow back. That's the death yep. spiral of what's called sequence of returns that you're actually selling principal to meet your income need, right? And now that money's not available to grow back. The chances of you growing back get worse and worse and worse. And that's when people literally deplete their assets to zero. And I, I don't think that's necessary uh, or certainly prudent. And that is definitely something that's uh, avoidable. But again, the conventional wisdom is, oh, so what are the tools? What are the tools that you want to look for then if you're not invested in a basic uh, mutual fund or an ETF that's uh, following these things? Um, what type of investment tools should you be looking for? What type of tools can they work with within your systems? So I'm always very reluctant in these conversations to, to talk about specific tools because number one, it's very customized to the person. Sure. And number two, it violates my, uh, you know, I'm very against these financial entertainers who give 30 second advice, not knowing anything about a client. But I can tell you that both in the direct investing world, you know, in the, we'll call it the stock bonds cash world, uh, there are multiple tools that allow you to capture upside and reduce or minimize downside. On the super safe space, kind of the insurance space, there are tools that allow you to capture uh, upside in both uh, life insurance and annuities that let you mm -hmm. capture upside and not, um, not experience the downside. So they say zero is your hero, right? So if the market's gone down, think about the people who have those tools now. Their friends are crying because the market's gone down 25%. They kept the same value they had the previous year. Now that money's there and available and ready to go up when markets go up. And then they capture and lock that in. And if things go down, they stay flat. And when things go up, they capture it again. I call that the staircase method. You want to go up when up is available. It may not be as high, but you still go up. You don't care, man. You, you work 25 years to sell your business and cash yeah. out. Like the last thing you want is to go through what a lot of guys or gals went through the last year. And boy, now I'm down 25, 30% of that you know, amount that took me 20, 30 years to to build out. And now I don't know what to do. And so I think that's super important. So for the audience that's listening, you're building something, you're looking to exit, or maybe you're going to be exiting in the future, or you have some money set aside, you know, it's time to start thinking strategically what you're going to do to make that money grow and generate an income for you and not not have to tear apart the principal or get it torn apart by the market. So Barry, where can where can the audience connect with you to learn more about some of these tools and strategies so that as business owners, they're not having to be in that situation where they're down 25% and not knowing what to do like a lot of people are this year? Sure. Um, this is very simple. They can just go to wealthdefensegroup.com, wealthdefensegroup.com. Uh, there'll be some information about our philosophy and how we you know, work with people. And then there's a little contact form where you can check off areas of interest. You'll see things like about the business valuation, about retirement income planning and things. And it all starts with a conversation to see if we're a good fit. And if we are, then we can kind of you know dig deep and make sure that the strategy matches what the person wants. What I really try to do is, is I always say that my job is to prevent you from ever buying Pepto-Bismol or Tums. Uh, that's really the job, right? The, the, the job is to not have people just be so, because you hear and read these stories about people exactly like you said, 
worked their whole lives and then they continued to like use the tools of accumulation for distribution left themselves exposed and and just it was just ruinous absolutely ruinous they have to go back to work um i or, find or that to worse, be they invested in ftx or crypto and really got <laughs> the the lady you mentioned before uh i noticed she's not uh being interviewed anywhere right now uh i noticed all my crypto bros are not being interviewed anywhere it's really interesting how these you know you're missing out and you're not doing this and you're not doing that when when the lights come on and the cockroaches kind of scatter they're nowhere to be found and uh, i'm not trying to point fingers at anybody but i believe our job is to um uh, try to increase the probability can't guarantee anything but guarantee guarantee the probability that you're going to do better and and not expose yourself to problems this year it was unavoidable uh, all categories did really poorly, except except a few. But there were tools that at least preserved people's money uh, and, and waited it out till the next time things went up. Because if you don't have to recover, if you don't have to come back up, that ability to staircase your returns and not live through those dips, because those dips take time, right? If this, the bottom line is your timeline and the vertical line is your money, if it goes down, and it takes four years for the money to to go back to where it was just at the starting point. Then that's four years of life. Four years of opportunity cost too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. very painful. Well, all right, guys. So everybody listening, make sure you guys go to wealthdefensegroup.com. That's wealthdefensegroup.com. Connect up uh, with Barry Barry's uh, team there and put these tools and strategies to work. If you're in the middle of building your business, now is the time to thinking. If you're hand and you're looking to sell, it's definitely the time. But the mo more intentional you can get in taking action towards your future as a business owner and your wealth that you're working so hard for is so important. And guys, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are good at making money, but unfortunately, there's a lot that are not so good at keeping that money. And that's where you need to have an expert in your corner who can help you make good decisions and reduce the risk so that your money and your wealth grow and last a lifetime. Well, Barry, the final word is yours. Really appreciate you being a guest on the podcast. But what's what's the final word or action that someone can take today to start defending and thinking about their wealth the right way? Spend 15 to 30 minutes a month paying attention to your money. Uh, figure out what's coming in on the income, what's going on in the expenses, uh, looking at your accounts. Don't just set it and forget it. Uh, a lot of problems can happen when you have this stuff out of sight, okay. out of mind. Uh, so just, just be in there and pay attention and put as much entrepreneurial focus on your own finances as you do on the business. And I'm a huge advocate for entrepreneurs. And so I'm, I'm, uh, encouraging them to apply the same skill set to their business and personal finances as they do to the business itself, kind of like what you said. So appreciate the opportunity to talk to your uh, audience today and, and happy to help anyone I can help. And if you're working with somebody else, just make sure they're not putting you in a position where you might suffer needless harm. No question. Well, thanks so much for being a guest, Barry. Guys, take action. This is not a passive podcast. Check out the website and take Barry's advice and the same advice we give. Take 10 to 15 minutes every single week. Go through your money. Go through your credit. Go through your business. Profit first. Make sure you're winning the money game. 
And if you do that on a regular basis, you, you will make progress. God bless, guys, and we'll see you next time on the Seven Figures Club podcast. Are you looking for more seven-figure secrets, content, or even how you can launch your own recession-proof business? Then check out sevenfigures.com. That's the digit seven, F-I-G-U-R-E-S.com, where we share more videos, stories, strategies, funding solutions, entrepreneurial education, and even the secret business type that's recession-proof. Thank you for listening, and if you're finding value in our podcast, please give us a five-star and invite others to join the club.